occurs starting in the, about the fifth verse of chapter 7 and continues down through the rest of the book. The first half of 2 Corinthians has been largely apologetic, defensive. Uh, Paul defending himself against the various accusations and criticisms and explaining ultimately what true ministry is. Uh, the second half, he very much goes on the offensive. And you start to see some of that shift this morning as he confronts and as he uh, tries to address the various issues still lingering there in Corinth. And so it's God's providence. We'll finish this morning and then, and then I'll have a few week, several week break um, from preaching. And it comes very timely for our family uh, as we're in a very uh, intense season with my wife's treatments. And so it's, it's great to be able to kind of finish this thought, take a pause, and then we'll come back to 2 Corinthians in several weeks. And so this morning, we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to work our way from verse 14 down through verse 4 of chapter 7. Now, so having said that, uh, verses 2 through 4 of chapter 7 are really almost like a strong transition and break point. So there's an important truth for us to glean there, but we'll spend most of our time there in chapter 6. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, if you follow along in your Bibles with me as I read this morning, Paul writes this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. You may have picked up, those of you that remember from last week, that moment there when you get into chapter 7, verse 2, where he says, make room in your hearts for us. It's a pickup of the same command that he said the week before, last week when we looked at it where he said, open wide or make wide your hearts for us. And so we have these interesting passages where he says, make wide your hearts for us. In other words, love us. Paul telling the church, love me. And then you have this whole section where if your Bibles are structured a certain way, you can even tell that there's a number of quotations there from the Old Testament, conversation about idolatry, don't be linked with unbelievers, only to return again with essentially the same command, love us. It's so confusing to some commentators when they get into that series of quotations that they think it was added in later by the Corinthians, or it was later added by some uh, commentator because they don't understand why could it be there. But let me just tell you right off, the ba- right off the bat why it's there. Paul is explaining why their hearts are so narrow. He's told them, love me. He's told them, I do ministry out of love for you. And now in all these quotations, what we find buried is why their ministry is frankly so messed up. Why they do it in such a broken way. Only to return again to the command, 
love us. Because Paul understands that if they, and, and frankly if we, will understand these truths from verse 14 down through verse 18, it will get to the heart of why so frequently we do ministry in a very broken way. Now, when I talk about ministry, what, what do we mean by that? Well, you might remember that picture that Paul gave of, of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel leaving, leading refugees back home. And so we're talking about gospel-centric ministry. We're talking about the effort to proclaim truth to a lost person so that they may believe and be saved. But we're also talking about speaking truth to believers, whereby they might repent of their sin and grow in their sanctification. It's the ministry you have when you're with a group of people and they start gossiping and slandering. And in your heart, you know this is wrong. You're convicted by the Spirit. These other people are believers as well. And this is a ministry moment. Will you speak gospel in this moment? Will you raise your voice and say, friends, our conversation has steered wayward. I'm concerned it's even become gossip and slander. We need to stop talking this way about somebody else. Or it's ministry when for the umpteenth time you're discipling your child and you feel like you're saying the same thing to them you've said literally a thousand times. Boy, if God the Father ever looked at us that way, right? And, and it's a ministry moment. Will this time you also say it in grace, in love, and firmness? Or will this time you use the weapons of the world and be sinfully angry and yell and be mean and manipulative about it? It's a ministry moment. Or you go to say hi to your neighbor. Will you engage them with love and with truth or you go to a place of business will you engage with love and truth or you're in the workplace or in the classroom we're talking about ministry moments when god is giving you the opportunity he's gifting it to you to represent him as salt and light in this very dark world how do you and i do ministry and more to the point from paul here why do we do the ministry that we do one of my personal heroes uh, is d martin lloyd jones um, really a prominent minister in England uh, from really post-World War II all the way through the 60s and 70s and ultimately, I think, passed away in 1980 or so. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is a brilliant man. He was actually trained as a medical doctor and practiced medicine as a physician for a few years. He then could not, no longer escape the call of God upon his life. He went into the ministry, and as he's serving in the ministry, he was noted for his tremendous preaching ability, um, his, his rigorous adherence to the Word, his expositional, expository sermons as he'd work verse by verse, sometimes, frankly, taking years and years and years to work through books of the Bible. Sometimes you may think, I preach slowly. I'm I'm like an F1 car next to D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' snail's pace. Like, it's just astounding how slowly he worked through it, but he was so logically driven and reasonable as he argued from the text of Scripture, uh, almost like a modern-day Paul. Some would say, and he said this about his own preaching, his sermons were logic on fire. I love that commentary about him. He fought liberalism to the core. He, he raged against liberal theology that was inf infecting the church and the denial of the gospel. He was a prominent voice to rescue conservative evangelicalism in England. He was a noted speaker. He preached three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, every Friday night, typically for 50 minutes to an hour and a half every single sermon. Thousands would come to hear this man preach. And yet as he got older, his influence began to wane. And significantly... He resigned from the pastorate in the late 60s. He resigned because he came to the portion at the end of Romans where it talks about having the joy of the Lord. 
And D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I don't know that that's true about me when I minister. It's better that I don't minister any longer. I think it took great courage to do that. His remaining years were spent counseling and some measure of influence and writing, but his speaking became less and less. And then towards the end of his life, he was stricken with cancer. He was weakened physically. And the calls for counsel, the requests for speaking, the invites to write an article completely dried up. And one of the most influential mans in evangelical Christianity was set on the shelf. And so his biographer came to him, Ian Murray. And his biographer was interviewing him and working through things with him. And Ian Murray asked D. Martin Lloyd-Jones if that was hard for him. If it was difficult for him that now toward the end of his life, influence had waned. He no longer spoke. He no longer wrote. No, other ministers didn't call him for counsel or help or instruction. He was little more than rendered in bed. And D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, E. Murray tells it, turned to him, rolled over, looked at him, and he said, Rejoice not that the demons obey you. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. And he's quoting there Jesus from the book of Luke. When Jesus is instructing his disciples, they come back from casting out demons, they're thrilled, and Jesus tells them, Rejoice not that the demons obey you, but that your book name is written in the book of life. What D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was communicating is exactly what Paul is communicating here. Why do you do the ministry you do? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones and the Apostle Paul were not driven to do ministry for the obvious effects they saw, for the respect they earned, for the gratitude they would glean, for the friends they would gain. Because the harsh reality is that sometimes Paul, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and you and I will see no fruit to our efforts, we'll receive no respect for what we've done, no gratitude for our service and our giving, no love and affection, and we'll have friends abandon us. That's exactly what Paul has just said, isn't it? And so why keep serving? Why embrace that next ministry moment of speaking truth into your friend's life? Why invest that next ministry moment of agreeing and teaching a Sunday school class or going to a loved one and sharing the gospel or engaging your neighbor or your coworker or your boss, your schoolmate? Why do it? Why do we do the ministry we are called to do? This is at the very crux of this text. Why are the Corinthians ministering? Paul has just put loving ministry on display, and now he's going to unpack for the Corinthians and hopefully by God's grace through the power of the Spirit this morning, unpack for us why we do the ministry that we do. Now, before we can get into that, there are two critical foundational truths that undergird everything Paul says here. He doesn't teach them explicitly here. They're taught elsewhere in the Bible, but he is playing off of them. He is operating, believing and convinced that the Corinthians and us today, frankly, 2,000 years later, would know these two critical foundational truths. I'm convinced we may not be as fully acquainted with them, and I'm convinced that if we're not acquainted with these foundational truths, the house that we will build for the rest of the sermon will be on sinking sand. And so what are those two foundational truths? Number one, truth number one, you must keep at the forefront of your mind as we work through these passages. Those who truly love God will obey God. Love and obedience are chained together. They are welded together. They are inseparable in the Bible. If you love God, you will obey God. Negatively, we could put it this way. People who claim to love God will demonstrate it by their obedience. Someone who claims to love God but does not obey God is revealed to be a liar. You actually don't love him. 
the very core of the gospel is loving God, right? God says, love me with all your heart, soul, and mind. Jesus said the greatest of the commandments is love the Lord your God. He says in another place, if you don't love me more than father, mother, sister, brother, you can have no part of me. So when we say to love God, we are saying to be saved, to be a follower of God. Those who truly love God will obey God. This is taught from the very Every, all through the Bible, and frankly, if we had time, I could show you a sort of timeline of the Bible where you see it in pre-law, you see it communicated through the law, you see it through the prophets, you see it through the poetic books, the wisdom books, and you see it in the gospel. Let me just give you the bookends, though. Those who truly love God will obey God. The first bookend you can see is in Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. I'm going to read this passage to you, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. God speaking through Moses to the people. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Those who truly love God will obey God. But you can fast forward all the way to Jesus. We could look at the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus differentiates between those who claim Christ or claim salvation and those who truly are saved, and the defining difference is obedience. But Jesus makes it so clear in John 14, 15. You can't, I can't say it clearly. If you love me, this is what he says, you will keep my commandments. So here's how we can boil this foundational truth down. First, we are loved by God, and then in return, we love God, and because we love God, we will obey God. Those who truly love God will obey God. Foundational truth number one, Paul is assuming that all through this text. Everything that he says about ministry, everything we've learned up to this point, he's basing it off that foundational truth. Foundational truth number two, what does that look like in real life? This is just as critically important. Our love for God and others is revealed by our love and obedience to our authorities. Now, I think in a church like ours, I get very little and would receive almost no pushback on truth number one. If you've been in our church for any length of time, you're going to hear from this pulpit, whether it's from Darren or from myself, you're going to hear us rage against things like easy believism. You're going to hear us rage against the concept that you can be saved and you don't have to obey. You're going to hear us rage against this idea that you can be saved and not really love God. You're going to hear us rage against this concept. I ask Jesus in my heart, I must be saved, even though you don't live for him, you don't love him, you don't love God or love others. You're going to hear us say, no, 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 no. And if you don't like that, you don't agree with that, you're going to be in this church long. But I think truth number two is where I step on toes. But it's so critical to understand this text. And most importantly, it's biblical. And it's just as biblical as the first foundational truth. The way real life works out is obedience is oftentimes revealed in the way we deal with the earthly authorities that God has placed over us. Paul is all about obedience as he's dealing with the Corinthians here. He's on a mission to find out, are they going to obey? If you've been tracking with us in First and Second Corinthians, you already know that to be the case. He wrote to them, hoping that they would respond in obedience. He traveled to them, looking to see if they were being obedient to what he taught them. He was looking to hear from Titus, who he sent, that they were obedient. Here, this is where it gets to real life. God has not spoken out of the sky to the Corinthians. He hasn't. Corinthians did not wake up one morning fresh from a dream. God told us to discipline this man of the church. It's not how it worked. 
They didn't suddenly walk down the road, have a shining, blinding light that said, this is the way you think about spiritual gifts. They hadn't suddenly walked along and discovered, yes, while wives and husbands are perfectly equal before Christ at the cross, there are still voluntary roles of submission. None of that had happened. These are all areas that the Corinthians were horribly wrong about. There were other passages that they didn't understand, that they were twisting. There were other areas they were being deceived by false teachers, people that Paul will go after here in just a few chapters and call super apostles. What God had done is he had put people into the Corinthians' lives to speak spirit, biblical truth to them, and in their minds, that's what we're rejecting. Paul. They see Paul as the problem. They see the authority God has put in their life as the problem. They don't see their heart as their own problem. And yet the biblical real-life truth is this. God has established authority structures in this world. You can think of them as three primary institutions. The government, the church, and the home. What's interesting is if you have time, and, and obviously I'm not going to take the sermon this morning to do this, but I would challenge you, if you have any disagreement with this, then you need to go this week and you need to do a systematic study of the Bible. And frankly, I've run into folks in the past where I've said that to them, they disagree, I've said that's what you need to do, and they're like, I don't even know what that means. And I want to say, then stop disagreeing until you learn how to study your Bible. Then study your Bible, and then we can have a conversation. Until then, it's your opinion. And I'm not, I'm not really interested in that. And so you need to do a systematic study of the Bible. And this is what you're going to discover. You're going to discover things like this. You get to government officials, for example, in Romans 13. He says, obey them as unto me. He didn't say, are they saved? He didn't say, are they lost? He didn't say, do you like them? Do you not like them? Do you vote for them? Do you not vote for them? He says, obey them as unto me. He links them to his own personal authority. Now, I'm not going to take time this morning, but everybody always wants to know this because we all have rebel hearts, let's be honest. Is there a limit to your obedience? Obviously, if a human authority ever tells you to do something specifically that defies the clear command of Scripture, you are not obligated to obey them. You should obey God rather than man. Having said that, do you know how infrequent that is? Stunningly infrequent. Shockingly infrequent. And so then what our heart wants to do is we start scrounging for Scripture and we'll want to make a liberty issue a clear command. He says it about home. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Whether it's the government, whether it's the home, most uncomfortably for the Corinthians, it absolutely applies to the church in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. In Ephesians, wives are told to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. In Ephesians 5.21, get this one, church members are called to have a degree of submission even to one another. Why is that important? Because if your brother or sister in Christ that's a member of this church, it's not one of your shepherds. Your brother and sister in Christ, they're doing life with you, they're coming along beside you, and they start to see some habitual sin pattern in your life, they see a struggle in your life, and so your brother or sister says, hey, can we have a cup of coffee, a cup of tea together? They sit down with you, and they start giving you examples, they say, I'm really concerned for your soul, I don't know if you see this, I don't know if it's a blind spot, I don't know if you're resistant to this truth, but you're in sin here, I, I'm afraid you're in sin. Now I'm going to come to you in humility and grace, because Galatians 6 tells me to. I've been thinking about my own sinfulness but I just want to come along beside you and help you. In that moment, guess what? They've opened the word. They've given you clear examples from life. You know what you should do? Submit. Oh, but I believe in the priesthood of the believer. 
on me too. And so I believe that I'm not just a shepherd, but I'm a sheep. And I need dear saints like you and others to come into my life and to help me to grow and change to be like Jesus. And we should always be concerned when an authority plays the card, I'm above all of you and I'm not approachable to any of you. That's when you run into problems. And so this is my own heart. Isn't it just you? This me, like this is me. Like sometimes people think positional authority suddenly frees you from that. Uh, no, it gives you greater accountability. You give an account for their souls. Dads give an account. Governments will give an account. Churches will give an account. And so the real life example then is our love for God and others ultimately becomes revealed through our love and obedience even to our authorities. It's going to look like wrestling with our flesh and submitting to God's work coming through very imperfect people. Paul wrote that in Romans about submission while they were under Nero. Arguably, arguably, other than guys like, like Nero hits top five list worst leaders ever with guys like Hitler and Stalin. And he says, submit. Like, so, like this is no joke. So whether they're saved or they're lost, unless they're telling me to do something that's explicitly against Scripture, I'm called to submit to them out of love for God. So then what's revealed when I won't submit, when I say no, is I have a God problem, not a them problem. But rebels never think of it that way, do we? No, the reality is we wrestle with our flesh and we become convinced, well, our authority doesn't have our best interests at heart. Our authorities are not on mission for us. Our authorities don't want to help us. Our authorities don't love us. And guess what? Sometimes they don't. And all those things were exactly what they accused Paul of. He's in it for him. He doesn't love me. He doesn't want what's best for me. We don't need to obey what he tells us. And Paul understands this reality. Our failure to love and obey those that God has put over us, and we'll make it real specific here this morning, the Corinthians, specifically as they're speaking spiritual truth to us and calling us to obey, is an idolatry problem. It's not an authority problem. And so our takeaway this morning really becomes that truth. Idolatry shrinks our hearts and it robs us of true ministry. What's the real damage then of this shallow love? Because what's happening is the Corinthians now are being revealed. I have a very shallow love towards God. It's very small. And because my love is small, my obedience is small. And my lack of love and my lack of obedience to God is being revealed. And my lack of love and obedience to this person that God has put in my life to speak truth to me, the Apostle Paul. Now the Corinthians want to claim, no, 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 I love God. And Paul's making the case, no, 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 you don't. And so if you don't understand those foundational truths, you will never comprehend why he goes after them the way he does. Now, Paul just proved, and we saw this last week, Paul just proved all the ways that he's not on mission for him. He says, I'm on mission for ministry, and you can tell this because of my nature of my ministry. Look at the things I've suffered, the things I've been through, the things that have cost me. I've laid out my life. I've gone through all these things. I'm committed to these things. I've proven my love to you. In other words, he's trying to take the teeth out of the Corinthians' accusation against him. We don't need to love and obey you, Paul, because you're in it for you. And Paul's given all these evidences where they don't really get to claim that. 
even though Paul knows that's still not the total heart of the issue, Paul's trying to grease the wheel, as it were, for them to listen to the truth that he's trying to say to them. Why would Paul do this? Because Paul understands this reality. When you and I are struggling this way, when you and I are resisting, we hear a word from the pulpit. We hear a word on the radio. I don't, frankly, I don't care where. You're reading your Bible and your devotions, and the Bible begins to convict you about the way you're doing life. Just make it real specific about the way you do, or frankly, the way you don't do ministry. And your heart is convicted. That's the Spirit. And, and you're starting to feel like, man, I don't really sacrifice. It doesn't really cost me. I'm not really interested in loving and pursuing others. I don't like to speak truth because I might get rejected. I have friends that betray me. I don't want that. I've already had that. I'm not going to have that again. Uh, I know what it's like to spend my money, my time, resources, and have no one be grateful. And that we're thinking these things. It's being revealed because the text is convicting us. And we say, no. You know what all that is? That's just Steve Johns wants me to do X. That's the way the Corinthians thought about Paul. I use that example because I've never had any of you say that to me. But it's that mindset. I'm going to take my conviction, I'm going to make it your problem. So why does Paul persist in this? Like He's getting kicked in the teeth and he keeps, because he understands this, this reality. The one we hurt most is our own walk. Paul's hurt emotionally, yes. He's wounded because Paul has birthed this church and now they reject him. This is like a child, a prodigal child, who is loved and served and sacrificed for by their parents. They've given everything. They're cared for by their parents. The parents aren't perfect, but their parents have loved them, pursued them, poured that life for them. And the child gets pointed and says, I'm done with you. The pain of that is surreal. Proverbs talks about the, angst, the anguish of a mother's heart. Uh, the destruction of a father's own soul because of the, the terror of seeing your child go, go down the wayward way. And I know some of you have prodigal children. That's a painful moment for you to hear. And so Paul is pained emotionally, but we all know this. The one who's going to suffer the most is who? The prodigal. And Paul understands that when, when, he, call, when he calls them to obedience, Hebrews tells us, do this that it may go well with you. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right, that it might what? Go well for you. Wives, submit to your husbands. Why? So that the gospel might not be twisted. The ones at great risk here are the Corinthians, or you and I in our idolatry. And so the real damage happens to the one resisting. So then, idolatry is what's shrinking our hearts. Now let me prove that idolatry is the problem. Let's get some diagnosis going on here. So this whole section, Paul keeps coming back to this idea of rescuing refugees over and over and over again. This isn't what they call an interpolation. An interpolation is where somebody just, uh, a later scribe is reading through the book and was like, oh, this would be a great idea for me to write my thoughts. This is the diagnosis of why we love little. It's because we love something else much, much more. And so he has this idea of rescued refugees that was his own picture, mental picture of his own ministry, and it's also his mental picture of them. He keeps on quoting Old Testament passages about the exile. He keeps on trying to help them understand it. And in this text, this is the way you're going to see it broken down. In verses 14, 15, and 16a, he's going to kind of give an overview of the problem. The problem is idolatry. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He's referencing again back to the Old Testament what they did. When they came back to the land, 
some of them immediately began to intermarry again with unbelievers. That was part of the problem from the get-go. Listen, that doesn't mean like the way we tend to think, right? So the way this has been perverted in modern day times is um, whites should marry whites and blacks should marry blacks and there the twain shall meet and, or economic barriers or ethnic, ethnic barriers or socioeconomic or educational barriers. That wasn't the problem. The problem is you have guys like Solomon that are running around and he marries an idolatrous woman. She's lost. Uh, she loves the things of this world. And, and Solomon wants her approval and the way to get her approval is to love what she loves. We all know that. Like even in a healthy marriage, part of the way to knit your hearts together is learn to love what your spouse loves and spend time doing it with them. Right? And so that's what Solomon wants. The problem is what she loves are idols of this world. So in order to get her affections, her approval, and her affirmation to be connected to her, to be one with her, he's got to love what she loves, and that includes all of her idol worship. That was the intermarriage problem. The intermarriage problem had to do with believers marrying lost people and then learning to love what they worshipped. That was the problem. Instead, the system should be, if a believer is married to a lost person, you resist their idolatry, love them, serve them, be kind to them, and share the gospel with them, and you never know, God may actually use that to save them. But the problem is, when they came back from Babylonian captivity, they immediately started intermarrying again. And, and so Paul's telling them, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so he starts explaining this, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? That's belief with unbelief. That's holiness with impurity. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, Belial a leading idol? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? The problem is your idolatry. You have a narrow heart of love, a shallow heart of love, a cold heart of love with minimal nominal obedience because you have an idol problem. That's the overview. Now, then Paul's going to give them three pictures from four different quotations from the Old Testament. Now, if your Bible's laid out like mine, they're all strung together. You wouldn't know that unless you spend time going back through and studying the text. And some of you will even see, they'll put a little letter there or a little number uh, in your Bibles, and you'll look down at the page. If you have that kind of Bible, study Bible, it'll show you the cross-reference. Three of the four quotations are all from the time of the exile. The last one isn't. They're all to increase. And so where we're going to head in this text then to deal with the idols of your heart and my heart is we need to see first that we are rescued people, second that we're separate people, and thirdly that we're loved people. And so let's walk through them that way. First of all, that we are a rescued people. Verse 16b. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul's quoting from Ezekiel 37, 27. He's quoting from Ezekiel 37 that is one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament. It's the chapter of the Valley of Dry Bones, where the prophet is discouraged. How does anybody ever going to get saved? He says, go into this valley. A massive battle had taken place there. He says, start preaching. The only thing in this valley are bones that have now been bleached white by the sun. He starts preaching the Spirit of God moves. And flesh and muscles and skin come on these bones. They turn back into bodies, and then life comes into them. He says this is what it's like preaching the gospel. This is what ministry's like. Ministry feels like standing in a graveyard shouting, come alive. Everybody else thinks you're nuts. 
And ministry is watching God on the move. And being faithful long before you're ever fruitful. And so in Ezekiel 37, he tells them the valley of dry bones. He examples it as two sticks, Judah and Israel tied together. It's a beautiful passage of restoration and redemption. And ultimately, there's this truth to those refugees who have come home. And he says to them boldly, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will live among them. Paul's quoting this here because Paul believes the church is the first step of the fulfillment of this promise. Listen now, the first step of the fulfillment of this promise was not the Jews getting Israel back after World War II. It's a spiritual. And the first step of the, the, the restoration here is a saved people that God dwells among. He lives in us by His Spirit. I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. It has the idea of an outcast brought in. Someone put out, now brought in to behold. Someone, someone rejected that's now accepted. Everyone in this room has at some point experienced what it's like to be an outcast. Maybe it's been over your skin color. Maybe it's been over your height. Maybe your weight. Maybe your physical attractiveness or lack of physical attractiveness. Maybe it's been a physical disability or a mental disability. Maybe it's been a learning disability. Everyone in this room knows what it's like to feel like an outcast. Maybe it's because it was a brand new job. And people treated you like you were stupid because you didn't know what to do. Maybe it's a classroom setting and you were not performing up to snuff. Maybe it was a sports team. Maybe it's even been when you were brought into a family by your spouse. Everyone in this room has known the pain of being an outcast. Maybe it's as you've aged and your virility or your beauty has faded and you feel rejected. You know the pain of being on the outside. You know the loneliness. You know the angst. You know the sorrow, and you and God alone know the tears at night. To be an outcast is to suffer the cruelest of rejections. It is to no longer belong. And the language that he uses, though God uses throughout the Bible to describe the exile of Israel is as outcasts. Outcasts ultimately will begin to do whatever it takes to survive. They tend to get jaded and angry, defensive and prickly, manipulative and deceiving just to get by. Our sin is what makes us true outcasts. It's our selfishness that isolates us and it makes our love grow cold. But Jesus loved the outcasts. Jesus called the outcasts to himself. He calls the woman at the well. He goes to Matthew, the tax collector. He heals the lepers. He, he goes to the demon-possessed. He reaches out to Zacchaeus that we sing a song highlighting his outcast condition, the wee little man. And Jesus calls him to himself. To be saved is to know what it's like to be brought in from the cold, to be welcomed in warm, loving affection. 
There's probably no greater picture in literature of an outcast than Jean Valjean, now free on parole. He can't get a job and no one will pay him. And in Les Miserables, he doesn't know what to do. And one priest reaches out to him and brings him in and says, I've bought your soul for God. It's a literature portrayal of what you and I have experienced if you have been saved. You've turned from your sin. You realize your sin is what has separated you from God. It is what's pushed you outside and God welcomes you in and he makes the orphan his son and his daughter. But at what expense does this happen? Jesus is the ultimate outcast. He's an outcast by his own people. He came to his own and his own received him not. His brothers and his sisters rejected him, said he was crazy. And at one point, in a stunning moment, when everybody knows the people in Jerusalem want to kill him, Jesus' own brothers say to him, well, why don't you go to Jerusalem? They are like the brothers of Joseph who want to sell him out into slavery and see him die. Let somebody else do our dirty work. Jesus becomes an outcast when he's killed outside of the city, when he's cast out by society, when he's stripped naked. And so the shame of this to hang in front of everyone fully exposed to people you've ministered to and you've taught and you've loved, and now they spit on you and they beat you and they beat you and whip you to the point you don't even look human anymore. Isaiah says that his visage is so marred, his face is so marred, you wouldn't have even known who he is. He becomes the ultimate outcast, and then his father, the father, turns his face from him. So that you and I, who stand outside of the city, you and I shivering in the cold, you and I starving, separated by God by our sinfulness, He takes our place so that we might come in. Jesus became the outcast so that we can be brought in. Paul is telling them this. He's preaching, he's preaching to hearts here, folks, about ministry. <laughs> it's about ministry and what he says to them is this, you have been brought in. You will never come to grips with your idolatry. Steve Johns will never wrestle the demon of idolatry to the ground in ministry without first and foremost living in the ever-present reality. I have been brought in. I'm safe in the arms of Jesus. There's no one more important than his acceptance and love. There will come a day when he will say to me, enter in. Well done. And so Paul knows the Corinthians have drifted from that memory. They've forgotten what it's like to be brought home. And so he tells them, he quotes to them, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so first of all, he tells them, you need to remember that you're a rescued people. But then secondarily, he tells them, you need to remember you're a separate people. A separate people. And here, he quotes from two passages, intermingling them without hesitation. And one is from Isaiah 52. And it's what we call a suffering servant text that references Christ. And the other one is again from Ezekiel 
20 this time. Again, these are both exilic texts. He's, he, he thinks of himself as one who leads refugees home, and he wants us, the Corinthians and us, to think of ourselves as refugees that have been brought home. Here's what he says in verse 17. Therefore, because you've been brought in, right? Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Both of these passages are emphasizing the same thing. If the first quote emphasizes that you are a rescued person, an outcast brought in, both of these emphasize another truth, and that's this. Avoid the influence of the idolatry of the world around you. Avoid the impact of the philosophy of the world you live in, of the the emphasis of the city you dwell in. Avoid the impact and somehow find a way to push against loving what all the world around you loves. Paul sees it in Corinth for sure. We've often said it this way, there was more of Corinth in the church than the church in Corinth. I wonder then sometimes if there's more of the world in our ministry than our ministry in the world. In the Old Testament for Israel, it looked like things like they no sooner to get back to Israel and they intermarry. <laughs> they go back to their idolatry and they dismiss worship. They start messing with the Sabbath day. Uh, they, they build in their own houses. Their own, they, I, need, I need myself a two-bedroom economy apartment in the temple so I don't have to walk very far on Sabbath day. Um, let's let everybody else in. And, and hey, I know that that girl worships Molech and like burns babies, but she's really pretty, so I'm going to marry her. I mean, that's, it's just like shocking what Israel does. But it's no more shocking than what the Corinthians have done. See, now we're a church, we're saved. But you know, I know that he's having this weird, illicit affair with his stepmother. But if we put him out of the church, he's really wealthy. And that could be a problem. Because we need the money. And we like him. And, and let's have communion. You know what? I love when we have Lord's table. It's so awesome, but it's really hard. Because Nehemiah's servants come and they stink. So let's get there early. We'll get our tables. We'll eat our fill. And they can do whatever they got to do. God's given me now the gift of tongues. And so all of you should listen to me. And it's the middle of a service. And none of you understand what I'm saying. But I'm going to stand up and spout in tongues for the next 20 minutes. So that you can all see how God has blessed me and honored me. This is the way the Corinthians are doing church. Because they begin to think of ministry the way Corinth, the city, thought of life. And that's this. You do life for respect, for approval, for power, for influence. They thought you did ministry for respect, approval, power, and influence. It should help you get ahead. It's a trade city where everybody's making money. And so, listen, if you're one of those and you're an investor and you're on, on business as an investor to make money, that's what investors do. That's what entrepreneurs do. I'm going to start a business so I can make some money. You don't do things that don't make you money. Like, hello, right? Like, like let me start a business and I'm going to open my Pelican's uh, shaved ice, which is the best shaved ice around. I'm going to open my Pelican shaved ice. And nobody's doing this, but I'm going to be open from January through February only. Listen, dense one. There's a reason everybody else is shut down. Uh, you know what I've noticed as I've searched, there's no pelicans in Anchorage. I'm going to open my pelicans in Anchorage. 
Good luck with that mess. Look, entrepreneurs, business people, they don't do that, right? It's not the way they're wired. So here's the problem. What if that infects the way you think about ministry? If I don't gain from it, I'm not going to do it. And so the world is impacting the way they're thinking about it. And Paul's telling them this is part of idolatry. You're worshiping this. They do what they do because they worship what they worship. You do what you do. Listen now. Steve does what he does because I worship what I worship. Your choice is to do ministry biblically or not to reveal what you worship. That's real awkward. Because there's nothing you and I like better doing than to hide in our mess. Every one of you got a drunk drawer in your kitchen. Every one of you do, if you're normal. If you're, if you're like one of them OCD people and even your drunk drawer has foam inserts, Lord bless you. When somebody comes to your house, you don't just open a junk drawer and say, check out this mess. Right? Like, I remember growing up one time and my Aunt Nancy called. I loved my Aunt Nancy. She was, she was amazing. She had a strawberry patch just for me. That may not have been true, but that's what I believed as a child. That's what I believe to this day. One night, I think it was my Aunt Nancy called. Hey, can I stop by the house? They lived about 45 minutes. Hey, can we stop by? I mean, we went into tornado cleaning mode, right? I mean, at that point, she's not going to open the front closet. It's summertime. That's where we keep winter coats. Things are just getting thrown in the closet. We're hiding mess. And she pranked us because she was actually sitting in the front, in front of the house when she called. Aunt Nancy, she's a funny one. So she saw all the mess. We love to hide our mess, don't we? Wasn't it a little embarrassing that what Paul is saying is the way we do ministry reveals our mess? What I love, what you love, is revealed by how and what ministry you do or don't do. And what he's telling them is stop doing ministry bound by the thinking of this world. In Corinth, it was respect from the surrounding culture. This is evidenced by the judgment of Paul's sufferings. In Corinth, if you suffered, it was your fault. So they judged Paul's ministry. If you're suffering, it's your fault. In Corinth, they believed that comfortable ministry should be done with people like me. I need to do ministry with people I enjoy being with and that are like me. This is evidenced in the wrong way they do communion. They, they bought into the Corinthian lie that being liked was more important than the truth. It's evidenced by the resistance to deal with immorality. They, they, they thought in Corinth, ministry is to make me powerful and influential. It's evidenced by their abuse of spiritual gifts. They think in mini- that ministry should cost me little. It's evidenced by their failure to continue to give to the needs in Jerusalem. We don't know those people anyway. In Corinth, it's ministry on my terms. It's evidenced by their resistance to Paul's teaching and apostolic authority. Paul's weapons in the spiritual warfare ministry are the righteousness of Christ. The power is in the word and in truth. The power is the Holy Spirit unleashed through the love of Christ on the lost soul and the heart of the believer to bring life and transformation. Paul is driven by faithful integrity and love. Paul's the first Martin Lloyd-Jones logic set on Holy Spirit fire to do a work in somebody's life, regardless of what it gets me. Paul is driven by faithful integrity. Do you ever get frustrated that your faithful discipleship of someone has fallen on deaf ears? 
You ever get irritated, a little annoyed? A little irritated. I keep speaking truth to them, and they are not listening. Hello? Anybody home? You best buy an alarm clock and wake up. You ever get annoyed with that? You ever get irritated, bothered? You're doing ministry, and you're not seeing the fruit you should get. Why keep on? Maybe you just go the other way. You don't get angry. You just get depressed. Aren't you a failure then? What's the point? Why? Because the world judges success on visible results. I think it's all too easy in Irmo, South Carolina, to buy into the idolatry of this world the way that we think about ministry. If we don't see the visible results we want, we don't experience the gratitude and commendation we think it deserves, we reject the concept. If it it feels like it's going to cost me too much, too much emotionally, physically, spiritually, monetarily, then I'm not going to do it. That's worldly philosophy. Meanwhile, the Bible tells us even the smallest, tiniest acts of service that you and I do, God sees and will reward us richly in heaven, even down to giving a cup of cold water in his name. Idolatrous ministry caves, caves in the face of suffering and difficulty. Paul's endured. Thirdly, he says, you're a loved people. It's in verse 18. He's quoting now. It's the first time he's gone away from exilic texts. He's actually quoting from 2 Samuel 7. This is commonly known as and understood as part of the Davidic covenant, covenant God made with King David about his promises. And, and Paul just weaves it right in here. He understands the church, again, as a modern-day fulfillment of these covenants. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, can I just share with you the whole passage that he quotes from? Because it's amazing. This is what it says in the fullness. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And this is where Paul throws in sons and daughters and he throws in other pronouns because he wants them to understand this is for you. This was God's promise, not just to David, but through David to you. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Which accords directly with Hebrews 12. That we know because we're disciplined and we're chastened of God that we actually belong to God as our Father. He's a good Father. He, he rewards us, but He also disciplines us for our own good and for our own blessing. We've all seen undisciplined children, right? I, my first job was Chuck E. Cheese. I lived in a land of undisciplined children. I got bit, uh, spit on. I got peed on by a kid once. Like, I had a dad, I was in the ball pit. I'm in the ball pit, it's a cage. And I learned how to juggle, to entertain children. I had a dad get mad at me because he felt like I'd sent his kid down the slide and he had to come out too soon. This dad, grown man, coming through the tube trying to hurt me. Chuck E. Cheese was just an amazing venue of human nature of unruly, undisciplined children. You ever been around undisciplined children? You know what the real problem is? Their mom and dads don't love them. That's the problem. Our Father loves us. And because He loves us, He disciplines and chastens us. For some of us, in our hearts this morning, this sermon, a little bit of discipline, a little bit of chastening, doesn't feel so good. My dad never disciplined me that I walked away and said, that felt good. Never happened. No, sir. But he says, I'll be your father, you'll be my children. 
And one of the manifestations of that is I'm going to correct you because I'm going to lovingly transform you to be like my son. Now, I just wish Paul would have understood enough about that text to somehow weave into this passage parental love. Isn't that what he did? In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Now, when we discipline our children, we do it biblically, we do it correctly. You don't demand affection from them, but you do finish demonstrating your affection toward them. You make sure they know, whether they believe in that moment or not, I love you. I love you. And as God does a work in your child's life, guess what they will do? They will also love you. They will return affection. Thank you, Daddy. Thank you, Mommy. I love you. And we actually know, because we learned this from our first, one of our first foundational truths, their obedience, you actually want it to be driven from love. Not fear, not ultimately, but love. And so Paul tells them, listen, you need to remember that your father loves you. He's brought you in. In other words, what, he, what he's telling us in all these quotes is this basic reality. When the Corinthi- where the Corinthians have gone astray in their idolatry is they've forgotten that they're a rescued people. They've forgotten that they were outside brought in. They have forgotten that they are to be a separate people to worship. And they have forgotten that they are a loved people. You see, your shallow love and my shallow love is a reflection that I've gotten very shallow in my thinking about his love. In other words, this passage isn't at all about techniques or methods of ministry. It's a passage written to very selfish people who think that their ministry decisions have more to do with their calendar or their checkbook or their willingness or gratitude or commendation. And he says it actually has very little to do with any of that and has everything to do with your heart. And so what is the cure? What is the cure for our narrow hearts? Two things. Number one, pursue righteousness. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In other words, repent. You could really put it this way. Repent, repent, repent. And in your repentance then, love God and other people more than you. Thousands of daily decisions to do it. Thousands upon thousands of decisions to love God and others more than yourself. It's ministry moments. I'm going to love you enough to speak truth to you. I'm going to love you enough to exhort you. I'm going to love you enough to encourage you. I'm going to love you enough to share the gospel with you. I'm going to love you enough to set aside my time, my energy, my talents, my wants, my hobbies. I'm going to give those things up so that I can serve God, loving Him and loving you. That's what he says. First of all, run from your sin. Stop thinking about ministry decisions as just liberty choices. Well, I'm not sure I want to do that or not. Uh Uh-uh and start thinking about it as a decision of, is this a moment, has God gifted me a moment where I can love him and love others? One of the best pieces of advice. So some of my specific ministry is to proclaim the word. 
And I figured that out, I don't know, late teenage years, 18, 19. One of the best advice somebody ever gave me was a pastor. He said, Steve, I think God's called you to ministry. I think he's giving you that. Now I'm going to challenge you to do something. Every time somebody gives you the opportunity to speak, take it. I don't care what it is or where it is. I have preached in basements to seven people with a dog snoring so loud I had to raise my voice to be heard. In nursing homes, I preached in a nursing home one time and the lady turned to the guy next, is he done yet? And I just rolled with it because I was like 20. I was like, no ma'am, I'm not. Let me get you to the next point. I preached in Wisconsin, had some crazy woman screaming at me. I preached in jails. I preached in a female prison in Jessup, in the cut. This is the maximum security prison in Maryland for women. Very few things you can do as a woman to get in the maximum security prison. They all lined up. I'm 20, 21, pretty fresh-faced, pretty young. I don't know how things work. I preached a sermon. The ladies lined up, and I got hugged by every woman that was permitted to go to chapel that day. That was an awkward, uncomfortable, and strange experience. But I got to share the gospel. Preached in a maximum security prison where I had a dude behind me put his hand on my shoulder and said, I got you. I didn't know I was at risk till he said that. The NOIs came in, the Nation of Islam, they were ready to hurt me. I preached at a homeless shelter with homeless guys right here and a drunk guy screaming in my face. But somebody had said, God puts a ministry moment in front of you, take it. It was the best advice I'd ever taken. It was amazing. And I'll tell you the number one thing I learned through those experiences, number one thing. When you have no power, you'll see God's power. And I saw prisoners get saved. I saw homeless people get right with God. I sat and held the hand of people that were on death's door because the next time I came back to the hospice facility, they were already gone. I had nothing. I was 19, 20, 21. I didn't have a clue. Jesus showed up. Can I just tell you, stop filtering ministry decisions through what's convenient, comfortable in this world's philosophy. And start asking, is, what's the most loving thing I can do for God and others in this moment? Repent of the sin of making ministry about you. That's from my own heart. Secondarily, love and obey. Paul says, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. He says, I'm not, look, stop blaming Paul. Stop blaming your authority for your warped ministry identity. I do not say this to condemn you. Now, this is nice of Paul. Paul finishes, actually, because he's going to flow in. You're going to have to wait five weeks for this. Um, Paul's going to flow into one area that he's seen them obey. In other words, what he's telling you here is, look, I still love you. I'm not mad at you. And you need to keep growing. Stop thinking you're done growing. Keep changing. I'm not mad at you. Jesus ain't mad at you. Repent of your sin. Experience the love and affection of the Father's correction and keep growing. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you were in our hearts to die together, to live together. He is the ride till I die kind of guy. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. He knows I'm speaking frank. I'm putting it down. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort and all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. 
And then he goes on and tells them why he's overflowing joy. And you know what he does? He points to one area of obedience. Nothing makes a true spiritual authority happier than people who obey. How do you know if idolatry is shrinking your heart? Paul Tripp has 23 moments. I'm not going to read you 23. I'm going to read you some, though. Because I'm just going to let Paul... This way Paul Tripp gets to preach to me and you. I think that's fair. Love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of others without impatience or anger. Love is actively fighting the temptation to be critical and judgmental toward another while looking for ways to encourage and praise. Love is being more committed to unity and understanding than you are to winning, accusing, or being right. Love is being willing, when confronted by another, to examine your heart rather than rising to your defense or shifting the focus. Love is making a daily commitment to grow in love so that the love you offer to another is increasingly selfless, mature, and patient. Love is being a good student of another, looking for their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs so that in some way you can remove the burden, support them as they carry it, or encourage them along the way. Love is being willing to invest the time necessary to discuss, examine, and understand the relational problems you face, staying on task until the problem is removed or you've agreed upon a strategy of response. Love is being unwilling to ask another person to be the source of your identity, meaning, and purpose, or inner sense of well-being while refusing to be the source of theirs. Love is the willingness to have less free time, less sleep, and a busier schedule in order to be faithful to what God has called you to be and to do as a spouse, parent, neighbor, friend. Love is refusing to be self-focused or demanding, but instead looking for specific ways to serve, support, and encourage, even when you are busy or tired. Why do you do ministry? Is it out of love? There is no bigger influence on a heart of love ministry than a clear vision of you as a rescued person. Rejoice not that you do ministry, <laughs> that you see fruit or you don't, that people respect you or they don't, that people thank you or they don't, that people look to you for counsel or they don't, that people respond or they don't. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Rejoice you have been rescued. You've been given the gift of the opportunity to love God love others and serve them in ministry.